On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In May 2008, Sally Rohrbach, a 45-year-old professional, left her home in Angier, North Carolina. Angier is a suburb of Raleigh-Durham. It has a population of just over 5,000 people. It's in an area called Black River Township. She traveled to Charlotte on a business trip. For the first few days of her trip, it was pretty much business as usual. And then, Sally seemed to disappear without a trace. Sally was petite. She was five foot two, with blonde hair and brown eyes. She had been married to her husband, Tim Rohrbach, for 20 years. The couple had been together since college. The couple never had children, but Sally loved her cats. She also loved her job, working for the North Carolina Department of Insurance. Sally was a field examiner, which basically meant that she investigated people and companies. Now, all of her coworkers said that Sally was an exceptional employee. She was super dependable and amazing at her job. Sally had two phones. She had one for personal use, and the other one was her work phone. It was issued to her by the state of North Carolina. Her colleagues started to realize that no one had talked to Sally in a couple of days. They all agreed this just was not like her. She'd also miss get-togethers with friends on Wednesday and Thursday nights. And she failed to show up for an appointment on Thursday morning. So Sally's company contacted one of her colleagues in the Charlotte area. This guy called everyone he could think of who knew Sally. He tried to retrace her last movements in Charlotte. He even got on the road himself and tried to drive the same route she took. But he didn't find any trace of Sally. She was just gone. The day after she was reported missing, police found Sally's car, a silver Chevy Malibu, in the parking lot of a Bojangles restaurant. The keys and Sally's purse and some money were visible inside the car, but there was no sign of Sally. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Police in Charlotte were in the Bojangles parking lot trying to track down the last movements of Sally Rohrbach. There was no sign of foul play in the car. And it's interesting because there was an episode about this case on an investigation discovery show called Homicide City Charlotte. Gary McFadden, the former homicide detective with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, was interviewed on the show. And he said that when they found the car, he knew that area well. It was an area called West Boulevard. He basically said this was a pretty rough area. And the police believed that because this money was visible and the keys had been left inside, whoever drove the car there left it there because they probably hoped that it would get stolen and throw police off the trail. Gary McFadden, by the way, has been a very colorful and sometimes a controversial character. But whatever happens, 
He has a reputation as being a very thorough investigator, and this was no exception. Gary said that he believed if the car was taken by someone from the local area where it was found, basically he believed that it would have been stripped and would not have wheels or tires. There was visible money in that car. Again, though there were no obvious signs of struggle inside the car, they had to play out every theory. They wondered, could Sally have left it there herself? Or had someone done something to her and then needed to ditch the vehicle? Police started to retrace Sally's last steps. She had last been seen on Wednesday, May 14th, at the Dilworth Agency at 1427 South Boulevard in Charlotte. Friends and family were searching for her. And at first, police were light on the details, according to local news station WRAL. During the search, they wouldn't confirm if they suspected foul play. This is not unusual, by the way. When police are trying to put things together early in an investigation, sometimes they need to hold back detail. They needed to figure out what they were dealing with. They wondered, had Sally been kidnapped? Or did she have some kind of secret life? Had she been doing something that the company didn't know about after hours? These are all the types of things that run through detectives' minds when they're working these cases and figuring out the victimology. It turned out that Sally wasn't even supposed to be working on this case, according to police. She had been covering for a co-worker. She arrived in Charlotte on Monday and checked into a hotel in the University City area. On Tuesday, she went to the agency that she was auditing, the Dilworth Insurance Agency. She spoke to the owner, 40-year-old Michael Howell. She came back to the Dilworth Agency on Wednesday afternoon. And after that, there seemed to be no more confirmed sightings of Sally. She was apparently supposed to meet up with a friend on Wednesday night, but the friend said she didn't make it. Then, of course, she missed the work appointment on Thursday morning and failed to show up to meet friends on Thursday night. After her co-workers reported her missing on that Friday, police immediately took this case very seriously, and they sent out a team to look for Sally. Now, many of us who follow true crime know that we often see cases where sometimes, for various reasons, law enforcement don't get alarmed about a missing person. But in Sally's case, this didn't happen. This was a professional woman with a full appointment book and a really busy job, so they knew immediately that something had to be very wrong for her to disappear like this. They went to work. Police and fire crews started canvassing the area around Bojangles on Sunday morning. A police helicopter was hovering overhead. They brought in canine dogs, and a lot of Sally's friends and family showed up to help. Police were also trying to track Sally's movements electronically. They contacted her cell phone carrier and looked through her credit card receipts. And since it was the last place where Sally had been seen, they also took a ride to the Dilworth Insurance Agency. Now, the Dilworth Insurance Agency was an old-school family business that had been around pretty much forever. They talked to the owner, Michael Howell. He said that the last time that he saw Sally was on May 14th, Wednesday. He said she spent around two hours in his office and left at around 4 p.m. Detectives asked him if there had been anything strange about her behavior that day, and he said no. He said she was in a good mood when she left. He mentioned that she had a box full of receipts because she'd pretty much finished her investigation. Michael Howell was very cooperative. At the same time, police were taking a close look at Sally's personal relationships. They went to talk to her husband, Tim. According to Tim, 
Sally was his entire life. He said they were everything to each other. There were no clues that pointed to evidence of any kind of secret life. Tim told detectives that he and Sally had been college sweethearts and that they married right after graduation. They had been married for 23 years. He described their relationship as very happy and said they had no major issues between them. Gary McFadden asked the question on TV that I know a lot of people were thinking. If they were so close, why didn't Tim report Sally missing? Why was it her co-workers who had sounded the alarm? Tim said that he hadn't heard from Sally in a couple of days, but he said that this actually wasn't unusual. He said that Sally got super busy when she traveled. He knew that she was going to be gone that whole week. And he said that since he didn't have a cell phone, they tended to just email when she was on the road. He told police that the last communication he had with Sally was on Tuesday when he sent her an email. He said he emailed again on Thursday, but that she had not responded. Detectives were talking to Sally's colleagues, too. Her co-workers all said the same thing. She was an excellent investigator, very meticulous. The North Carolina Department of Insurance has a criminal investigation department, so now their representative came to Charlotte to help the police. They looked through her date book and saw all of her appointments neatly listed. They went through her phone and saw that it hadn't been used since the day she disappeared. They went to the hotel room and found that she had checked in. They found her suitcase and all of her clothes and her things. Whatever happened to Sally, it didn't look like it happened at the hotel. So detectives went back to that parking lot and the neighborhood around it. While they were canvassing, they got a lead. A woman told them that she heard a woman screaming and mentioned that she'd seen a silver car. Detectives figured out that this had happened on the day Sally went missing. According to the TV show Homicide City Charlotte, they found a handwritten note that was addressed to Sally, presumably from her husband, Tim. And police knew they needed to take a closer look at this letter, especially after they saw that it discussed problems in the marriage and the fact that Sally seemed to be unhappy and was possibly thinking about leaving Tim. Now detectives are wondering how much Tim wanted Sally to stay and if they could have had some sort of an argument. Detectives went back. They confirmed every single step of Tim's alibi. Even though they found parts of his story a little bit weird, in the end, they cleared him. The bottom line is, everyone in a murder investigation lies about something. So detectives have to find out what it is and whether they're hiding a small secret or a big one. Detectives were looking through Sally's phone records and the rest of her bills. They weren't having much luck. She hadn't placed any calls or used her credit cards. They also were looking at other missing persons cases in the area. Some of the women who were missing were around Sally's age and petite like her. So some of the detectives wondered if they could have a serial killer on their hands. But in the end, they hit a dead end with that too. This is where police work becomes so important when there's not a direct trail of evidence. These guys did exactly what they should do, which is go ahead and push aside everything they might have thought, push aside their biases, 
they went back with fresh eyes, and they started over again. They were still doing a deep dive into Sally's life, which also meant looking more closely into the Dilworth Insurance Agency and into Michael Howe. Now, Michael had been running the company for almost two decades. The insurance company was a family business. His dad ran it before him, and he had been working there since he came straight out of high school. Sally's job was to do an audit. The company was basically making a transition from using paper to electronically transferring funds, so she was checking their compliance with that system. But almost as soon as she got there, she started to see some red flags. She noticed that Michael didn't seem to have documentation to back up some of the transactions he said he made. And when she would ask him about this, he made excuses. At one point, Sally asked Michael for a physical copy of a check. He told her he didn't keep all of his records at the location where they were because he said the office had been broken into several times before. He said that she would have to wait for the check because it was kept off-site at another location. I'm not an auditor, but this sounds a little shady. First of all, I wonder, why would someone break into an office to steal something and steal financial records? It seemed like a little bit of an odd comment. At this point, detectives say that Sally was emailing her supervisors daily updates, and they got a lot of clues from these. In one email to her supervisor, Sally said she noticed that several months of bank records were missing, and she said that Michael Howell was floating money, which meant that a client would pay him thinking that he was paying their insurance premiums, but then, instead of doing that, he kept the money. And then he would maybe get around to making that payment when he got more money from other people. It's the same kind of scam that so many people who commit fraud do. It's been done by everybody from Bernie Madoff to the guys who ran the fire festival. These white-collar crime terms are actually very interesting. They call it floating, which sounds like something happy, floating on a puffy cloud. What Michael was doing was stealing insurance premiums from the company. Police started to take a closer look at Sally's caseload. They looked at her notes from the audit. According to an article in Fraud Magazine, which is put out by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, which, by the way, is an excellent resource for both white-collar and red-collar crime, when Sally showed up for the audit, she would need access to the business's files and also the books the owner kept. She would also need to interview him. Sally was doing more than just checking this company's compliance. According to court documents, Sally started her investigation after there were reports that customers' payments to GMAC Insurance Company, which was one of Michael Howell's biggest clients, weren't being sent in. And when they were sent in, the payments were for an amount less than what the customer had given Michael. Sally was trained in interview techniques. According to the search warrant, she quickly figured out that Michael was hiding something. In one of her emails to her supervisor, she wrote, quote, Started the audit at Dilworth today. He is to have the bank statements tomorrow. When I asked him what was going on with him and GMAC, he first replied nothing. So I asked specifically if they pulled his contract, and he did acknowledge that GMAC pulled the contract, end quote. On Tuesday, May 13th at 943, she sent another email. It read, quote, He gave me 16 months of bank statements today, all of 2007, except August and through March of 2008, and there were issues in each month. No negative balances, but he is floating money, end quote. A few minutes later, she wrote another email. It read, quote, 
He has no records on premises. Due to the frequency of break-ins and an armed robbery, he takes everything to storage each night. He is to bring in receipts and transmittals for June 2007 to current tomorrow, end quote. Tomorrow, of course, was the Wednesday that Sally disappeared. She went on in the email to talk about other issues. She couldn't compare the daily totals. And she said that these complaints went back many years. Basically, Sally had concluded that Michael was taking the money, but he wasn't sending it in to make the payments. So Sally needed to find the money. But to figure out that mystery, she would have to get the records. He promised to give them to her on May 14th. Sally showed up at his office, and after that, she was never seen again. By now, police are starting to suspect that Michael might know a lot more about Sally's disappearance than he's letting on. So they came back to talk to him again. On May 18th, they asked if they could search his office. Michael told the police to go ahead and look around. He voluntarily consented to the search. Now, this is always a tricky situation for law enforcement because if someone voluntarily says police can search their home and police go in on that basis and don't have a search warrant, The problem is the owner can withdraw their consent at any time. And at that point, law enforcement have to leave. And that's exactly what happened here. Michael pointed out the area in his office where he said Sally had been sitting at a desk working. The office was very clean on the surface, but these homicide detectives have been doing this for a long time. When they took a closer look, they saw some things that disconcerted them. They saw a stain on the white computer cord and the detectives on the scene said that it looked like it could be blood. So they started doing some chemical testing. As soon as a piece of that carpet and the computer cord tested positive for traces of blood, Michael Howell shut that search down. According to the Charlotte Observer, he also refused to let law enforcement look inside his car. The crime scene investigators had to leave. Obviously, in these types of cases, time is of the essence because police worry the person can destroy evidence after they leave, between that time and the time they're able to get a search warrant. Fortunately, they were able to obtain a search warrant almost immediately, and they were back the next day. And this time, they took everything. In the end, police ripped up the carpet and took it with them. They also took a desk, a computer, customer files, a vacuum cleaner, and some pornographic material, according to the search warrant. They could tell that there was blood under the carpet, even though someone had apparently tried to clean it. It had gone through and soaked to the floor. They were also able to search Michael Howell's car, and they found some blood in the back seat and on the rear passenger seatbelt. They arrested Michael Howell, and he was charged with first-degree murder. He asked the judge for a court-appointed attorney, but the judge denied that request. She pointed out that Michael's reported income was around $6,000 a month. According to WCNC, The judge said that he had a nice home and two nice cars and told him to pay for his legal defense himself. He argued that he spent more than he made. He said his bills totaled around $7,200 per month. This would have been crucial information for Sally to know when she started her investigation. According to statements made later by Michael's attorney, Michael's whole life was that business. He took it over right after he finished high school and had never done anything else. He was described by his friends and co-workers and people around town as nice and quiet and low-key. No one said anything bad about him, and everyone seemed totally shocked that he could be capable of this kind of violence. 
The story became national news, and very quickly, everyone wondered if this could become a death penalty case. It seemed like Michael was wondering about this too, because very quickly after he was arrested, he decided to cut a deal, and he started talking to police. He told them if they took the death penalty off the table, he would tell them where Sally's body was. On May 20th, Sally's body was found. It was in a wooded area in Fort Mill, South Carolina, around 25 miles away from where a car was found, less than 100 feet from the side of the road. Again, police did not give a ton of details, even though there were rumors that she had been killed with a blunt force object. Police said the cause of death was not immediately clear. According to the autopsy, Sally's body was so badly decomposed Medical examiners were never able to determine exactly how she died. She was wrapped in garbage bags, and in the end, her body was identified with dental records. Sally's family and friends were heartbroken, but at least they were finally able to lay her to rest. At the funeral, Chrissy Pearson, a spokeswoman for the North Carolina Department of Insurance, said, Sally died protecting the people of North Carolina. She died doing her job as a Department of Insurance employee. Chrissy Pearson also said that in the wake of Sally's death, the Department of Insurance was reviewing their policies to see if they needed to change anything to make their employees safer. According to WRAL, she said, we will honor her by making sure that whatever we do from here on out gives our employees the confidence and peace of mind to continue their work and the work that Sally was doing. Investigators with the Department of Insurance didn't stop their investigation They went to work. They went to the Dillinger Insurance Company and started pulling files from the office in Charlotte to send to Raleigh. In the end, they found out that Sally had been right. Michael Howell was stealing massive amounts of money from his own company. Law enforcement said that they discovered Michael had stolen around $150,000 from his clients. So when Sally came to question him that day, And she asked for those checks that he knew he couldn't provide. Michael knew that he was going to be turned in. He knew that his business would implode and that his reputation around town would be ruined. This case became defraud examiners, kind of like what the murder of Little Rock realtor Beverly Carter was to the real estate profession. It reminds you once again that white-collar criminals are not necessarily nonviolent and that it can be extremely dangerous to confront a white-collar or red-collar criminal about their potential fraud, especially in a situation where the examiner is alone with them. Chrissy Pearson, the Department of Insurance spokesperson, told a local news station, WSOC, we just don't expect our people in the field to be put in this kind of danger. She said that Sally's audit had been totally routine, and she said that Sally never gave any indication that she thought she was in danger. She said that Sally knew that she had the option of calling law enforcement and that she had done that in the past. Look, most white-collar audits don't end in violence, but experts say over and over that the mistake is assuming that because they are white-collar investigations, they won't get violent. 
The article in Fraud Magazine read, The numerous media reports on the story paint a picture that could make fraud examiners a little more nervous about their jobs. Nobody wants to believe that uncovering the truth could get them killed. But that might be what happened in Rohrbach's case. And this comes after the article in The Atlantic saying that homicide is the fourth leading cause of fatal occupational injury in the USA. The message after Sally's murder seemed pretty clear. We need to do more to educate people about the dangers they could face at work and how to handle them. And companies need to have policies that help their employees stay safer. I've worked as a private investigator and a journalist in some pretty dicey areas. In a way, the work that investigative journalists and PIs do can be very similar to what Sally was doing. The difference is, in these professions, everyone talks about the risk. You're at a cocktail party and someone will say, aren't you afraid it's going to get dangerous? And of course there are things that we do to look after ourselves. But no one goes up to an accountant and says, aren't you afraid it might be dangerous? But after Sally's death, it's clear that maybe we should be asking those questions. Frank Perry, the prosecutor and former FBI profiler, who came up with the term red-collar crime, co-wrote a paper, The Sally Rohrbach Story, Lessons for Auditors and Fraud Examiners. And in this, he said, it's not about making people paranoid. It's about changing company policies so that people can be safer. Confronting someone alone about their alleged theft can be very dangerous. He refers to auditors and forensic accountants, people who have to travel for their jobs, This also means, by the way, that they're immediately at a disadvantage because they have to go to the home turf of the people they're investigating. This doesn't really happen in any other kind of crime either. You wouldn't see a police officer go to a suspected criminal's home or workplace after hours alone, unarmed. But it happens all the time with fraud investigators. Frank Perry also talked about some of the misconceptions that we see again and again about white-collar criminals. For example... They're often thought to be one-shot offenders. Actually, research shows very often these guys are repeat offenders. And he quotes David Hare, who said, white-collar criminals often share the same exploitative, remorseless, psychopathic traits as other criminals. What distinguish these criminals are the victims they prey upon. So basically, when it comes to psychopathy and deviant behavior, white-collar slash red-collar criminals are no different from what we refer to as conventional-level street criminals. In every case, they have a problem, and they see murder as a solution to that problem. And when we talk about the fraud triangle, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization, red-collar criminals excel at what we call rationalizing behavior. They can rationalize their theft, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. So murder is just another more extreme solution. Around the time that they were figuring out what was going on at the insurance company, police got another break. Michael's wife, Tina Howell, came in and told police that she wanted to talk. She told them that she was shocked when Michael basically confessed to her. She said he told her that he was getting more and more agitated by Sally's questions. Finally, he said, he snapped and hit her with a computer stand. As Sally's supervisor pointed out, She apparently hadn't found anything in Michael Howell's behavior so threatening that she mentioned to colleagues she was concerned about this investigation. But that's one of the biggest dangers of this type of criminal. According to Frank Perry, these guys can seem so completely normal until the moment when they lash out. 
So by the time Sally realized this was escalating and there was a potential big problem, it was already too late because Michael Howe was not going to let her walk out of that office. The spokeswoman said, quote, One of the prevailing statements here today is, of course, you look back and wonder what you could have done differently. End quote. She said that investigators are trained to call in when they feel unsafe. She said Sally had done this in the past. If only she called for backup, she said. Frank Perry and some of the other experts suggest that when we're training fraud investigators to look for signs that things could be escalating, we should also be teaching them the warning signs of violent behavior. These include physical signs like clenched jaw or fist, change in voice, a sense of desperation, what he calls intimidating behaviors, including being argumentative, impulsive, and having excessive anger, or more general personality traits, like playing the victim, blaming other people for problems, having a sense of entitlement, and grandiosity, typical of a narcissist. And there was something else interesting that he pointed out. He said that when white-collar criminals say things like, what comes around goes around, or I don't get mad, I get even, this can be serious. We tend to ignore this behavior from our peers because a lot of times we'll just think it's a joke. I know it's just a movie, but I'm reminded of the scene in American Psycho where Patrick Bateman keeps telling everyone that he's into murders and executions, and everyone just laughs and assumes that, of course, he means mergers and acquisitions. Local media pointed out that although Michael Howell's friends called him a nice guy, by Sally's descriptions in her emails, that was not her experience. That's because this wasn't out of character for Michael Howell. This was Michael Howell's true character coming to the surface. Experts recommend that fraud investigators dig deep into their subjects' personal lives. Now, this means asking around for example, what kind of car do they drive? Do they appear to be living beyond their means? They should also ask about pressure, like finding out if they've gone through any personal trauma, like a divorce or death, or if their attitude has changed recently. Now, this is very good advice, but the problem with it is that it's still not addressing the core issue of safety because finding out something like that would involve talking to a lot of coworkers and friends and these are all people who could potentially tip off the person who's being investigated. Basically, fraud investigators are expected to go in and investigate people without the street smarts or training or access to weapons and backup that the police have. And in many cases, law enforcement officers are just not on what they call high alert when it comes to white-collar criminals. Unfortunately, this means that they can be tragically underestimated. And in red-collar cases, remember that a lot of the time, the victim might not even be the person who turned the perpetrator in. But for whatever reason, once people start closing in on the red car criminal, if someone's viewed as a threat, they're in serious danger. It's the personality type that Frank Perry calls the highly entitled, highly exploitative narcissist. These guys tend to go from zero to 100. They're not the guy who makes big scenes or gets in fights with people. They're the quiet, nice guys until they're not. And the media contributes to this, too. I've seen so many media interviews after something like this happens. And in so many cases, the media will report that the white-collar criminal just snapped. But just because someone doesn't have a record of violence doesn't mean that they just snapped. It's one of those myths that kind of refuses to die. The bottom line was Michael Hell had a goal. His sense of entitlement meant that he thought he wouldn't get caught. He was able to go through with killing Sally 
and he was able to clean up, come up with a plan and dispose of the body. And also remember that he had the presence of mind to wait and make sure that he was alone with Sally when they had this confrontation. When I can with this podcast, I really always like to provide a call to action. And so I really want for companies to make real changes so that their employees can be safer in these situations. It's fine to train them in the warning signs of distress, but since these guys are so good at masking their emotions, even if they don't show signs of distress, these have to be treated as high-risk situations. Experts have suggested steps like interviewing someone in your office or in public if possible, letting others know where you're going, and considering bringing someone else to the interview so that you can work as a team. They also teach tactics on how to disengage from interviews that seem to be getting heated. Things are changing, and they need to continue to change, but unfortunately, these changes came too late for Sally. In November 2009, Michael Howell pleaded guilty to 25 counts of embezzlement. In a plea deal, he agreed to a sentence of between 27 years and 9 months and 35 years and 9 months. His lawyer later said this was basically the best they could have hoped for. At least it wasn't life without the possibility of parole. The atmosphere in the courtroom was intense, and a lot of Sally's friends and colleagues showed up, including the department head at the North Carolina Department of Insurance. This man, Wayne Goodwin, said, Today's sentencing brings closure to a very tragic chapter in the history of our North Carolina Department of Insurance. Sally's husband, Tim, was finally able to talk about Sally. He said she had been his entire life. She was all I had, he said. He also described Sally as a kind of friend to the friendless. The thing I really noticed was that so many of her friends had no other friends. Sally was their only friend. It's just the way she was, he said. Michael's wife, Tina Howell, also wrote a statement. It read in part, For the last year, I've had Sally's loved ones in my heart and in my prayers. This has been a tragedy for your family, as well as for me and my children. I ask that everyone please continue to pray for Sally's family and for me and my children that one day we will have peace in our hearts. After the trial was over, according to local news station WCNC, Tina Howell and Tim Moraback hugged. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?